Galatians chapter 2. You may or may not be familiar with the name Martin Luther, Protestant reformer, uh, pretty famous guy. He lived uh, more or less 500 years ago. And on one particular occasion, he was preaching to his church in Wittenberg in Germany. And he said something to this effect. It is most necessary. It is most necessary that we know this truth well. Teach it to others and beat it into their heads. He was speaking of what it means to be justified in Christ. It is most necessary that we know this truth well. Teach it to others and beat it into their heads. So that is my stated goal today. I want to beat this truth into your head. What it means to be justified in Christ. You're a believer. Perhaps you've been a believer since you were four, five, six years of age. Maybe you were saved later in life. You're here. You're rejoicing in the Lord. Yes, you have your struggles. Yes, an ongoing battle with sin. But uh, when it's all said and done, there you are just delighting in the Lord, reveling in your salvation. Well, as we rehearse yet again this wonderful truth, what it means to be justified in Christ, I pray that you will be enlarged, enlarged in faith, hope, and love, and that you will go out of this place this morning rejoicing, delighting in the Lord, able to add a hearty amen to everything that you are going to hear this morning. Perhaps you're a believer. There you sit. Life hasn't been going so well. Uh, you maybe feel a little bit like a bone out of a joint, out of joint. Uh, don't touch me. Don't come too near. Uh, struggling, perhaps, with, uh, with habitual sin. Grieving, for all I know, uh, the loss of a loved one. Lamenting as you spend too much time on social media and are inundated with current events and all that is going on, not only in this country, but around the world. And all is not well. Well, I pray that as we unpack this precious truth, and again, as I beat it into your head, gently, graciously, that your faith, hope, and love might be ignited, kindled, quickened, awakened, that truly you might uh, strengthen what remains and might find your heart's delight fixed upon your Savior, Jesus Christ. And perhaps there is but one here right now, unbeliever, Glad you're here. Most welcome. Thrilled you are here. And friend, I want to cut right to the chase and state it now at the opening. You might think this is overly dramatic. You might think I'm overstating the case. I am not. Friend, you are about to hear the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. I beg you to listen. Listen well to this precious, glorious truth of what it means to be justified in Christ. And God willing, this may very well be the day of your salvation. And so you found Galatians chapter 2. We've heard the chapter read. I want to read again for us just a few verses, beginning in the 15th. 
And so again, pay close attention to what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes for us. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now notice this phrase, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justified in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. There you have it a second time. Justified in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Into verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, there it is a third time. I think he's trying to communicate something to us. I think he wants to make sure we really get it. What it means to be justified in Christ. What if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And so that's what we want to get our minds around. This is the truth. The principle that we want to grasp is what does it mean to be justified in Christ? Now, context, context, context. Just a couple of things quickly. That you need to know about these verses. The first is this. They are actually part of a really, really long paragraph. The paragraph begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 11. You know, you might flip over a page. Maybe that's a couple of pages in your Bible. But from chapter 1, verse 11, right through to the end of chapter 2, it's one paragraph in the original. Well, what's going on here? Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Something is amiss in the church of Galatia. Paul planted this church probably on his first missionary journey. In his absence, some have infiltrated the church and they are teaching Jesus Christ, Son of God. No problem with that. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Sure. Amen. Uh, Jesus Christ, we need to believe in him. That's all good. I've got no issues with that. But here's the thing. If you really want to be saved. If you really want to be right with God, you must live under the Old Testament law. That law, which God instituted at Sinai through Moses instituting the Jewish nation. If you want to be a follower of God, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to know a right standing, a righteous standing in the sight of God, you must live under that law. That's not what Paul is teaching. Paul has departed from the true gospel. And so in this paragraph, what is Paul doing? He is responding to that charge. He's letting them have it. Excuse the expression. Both barrels. He is unloading. Because he knows the gospel is at risk. At risk. The sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Is being compromised. And so in this paragraph. He gives four arguments. To explain the gospel. And to explain that he hasn't departed from the gospel. Rather these false churches. 
teachers in the church of Galatia have departed from the way they have departed from Christ. Did you get all that? Four arguments. The verses we are looking at are part of the fourth argument. It begins in chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, this is the start of his fourth argument, his fourth point. But when Cephas, you know who that is. You probably know him by another name. That's Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What's going on here? Well, Peter knows the gospel. Peter knows the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter knows that it's not necessary to live under the Old Testament law in order to be saved. You remember that incident? It's recorded in Acts chapter 10, isn't it? Peter has that vision. Three times, what does he see? A sheet filled with what? Unclean animals. Animals that were designated unclean under the Old Testament law. And three times he hears that voice, eat. And Peter, he scandalized initially. But what is God communicating to him? He is telling him that the Old Testament law is gone. That veil has been torn down. And he is preparing Peter for what? A knock at the door. Who's at the door? A servant. The servant of whom? A centurion, a Gentile. And he is getting Peter ready so that he realizes that that old barrier between Jew and Gentile has been obliterated. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. And the gospel we proclaim is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But on one occasion, Peter is visiting the city of Antioch where Paul lives. And there are some Jews there who are in the church and they are teaching, no, 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 no. If you really want to be a Christian, back under the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all of those dietary laws. You need to observe all of those festivals. You need to perform the works of the law in order to be justified. Out of fear? I don't know. Loss of reputation, what does Peter do? He begins to back away from the Gentiles. He won't eat with his Gentile believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. He won't eat with them anymore. Paul goes, and I don't think this is an understatement, Paul goes apoplectic. And he stands up in congregation before everyone and he opposes Peter to his face. That is not what you believe. You are acting contrary to what you know. And that is the context for our verses. Verse 15. We ourselves, Peter, you and I. He's speaking to Peter. You and I, we ourselves, what are we? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's not saying the Gentiles are sinners and the Jews aren't sinners. Later on in verse 17, he's going to identify himself as a sinner. All he's doing here is using that old designation, which the Jews understood. Oh, we're the people, the covenanted people of God and the Gentiles are sinners. Well, Peter, yes, you and I are Jews. Yes, we were part of that covenant. Yes, we were living under that law. Yet we know, verse 16, Peter, you and I, we know, this is what we know, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in a nutshell, Paul is simply saying to Peter, Peter, start acting in a manner that is consistent with what I know you believe. I know you know this. We know this, that we're Jews and we found we couldn't be saved by the law. We found that justification comes through faith in Christ alone. Well, how dare you now insist that Gentiles act like Jews in order to be saved? That is completely antithetical to everything we know to be true. Completely antithetical to the gospel we proclaim. What it means to be justified in Christ. Dare I ask, did you get all that? That's the context. That's what's going on here. A little bit of controversy in the church at Antioch. And now a little controversy in the church at Galatia. And Paul, as he defends the gospel, he appeals back to this historical event in which he had to confront Peter himself to remind him as to the nature and essence of of the gospel which they proclaimed. And so what we are going to do is unpack on the basis of verses 15 and 16, maybe a little bit into verse 17, what it means to be justified in Christ. I want us to know this. I want us to be able to proclaim this. I want this to be at the center of our lives. And so... Imitating Martin Luther, again, here is my goal this day. It is to now beat it into your head and to understand what it means to be justified in Christ. There are seven essential truths that we must grasp, must grasp these. Number one is this. I see there are some kids here. You know, kids, if you got a pen and paper handy, It might help you, you know, as you're tracking through the sermon. You can understand this. This is nothing complicated. You just write down numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Seven points, seven truths that we need to understand to really get our minds around what it means to be justified in Christ. You get down those seven truths and then later over lunch you can test mom and dad or grandpa and grandma and see how well they were listening. Seven truths. Here is the first one. We must obey God's law to be right with Him. Did you get it? It's the first truth. We must obey God's law to be right with Him. That is a debt. That is a burden. That is a responsibility that was placed upon us at creation. Created in the image of God. And Paul tells us in his epistle to the Romans, chapters 1 and 2, that all people, all places, and all times know certain truths. They know God exists. You do not need to tell anyone or prove to anyone that God exists. Everyone knows God exists. The problem is this. People willfully suppress what they know to be true. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows something of God's nature His power and His wisdom and His goodness. Everyone knows something of God's decree. Judgment is coming. 
And everyone knows inherently because God himself has written it upon man's heart, something of God's law. Wherever you go, any place, any time, everyone knows it is wrong to murder. Everyone knows it is wrong to steal. Everyone knows it is wrong to dishonor mother and father. Everyone knows it is wrong to engage in sexual immorality, whatever the nature of that immorality might be. This is the law. Everyone knows it intrinsically. And this is a debt by creation that we owe to our creator that for him to accept us and for us to have a right standing in his sight, we must obey his law. Did you get that? That's number one. Number two is this. We can't obey God's law. Can't do it. And Paul there in verse 16, he quotes, not really a citation, more of a, a, an inference, if you like, out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 143, verse 2, where we read, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. You see, we have a problem. We are debtors to God. That debt placed upon us at creation to obey his law. We disobey his law. Have you ever misrepresented the truth? It's a polite way of asking if you have ever lied. Have you ever craved something that did not belong to you? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever experienced lust, anger, bitterness, all of these things are violations of God's law. The Bible describes these things as trespasses, transgressions. As you're driving along one of the highways around here, and, uh, and there on the fence is a sign posted, no hunting, no trespassing. There it is, black and white, the law. You're not to hop over the fence and start hunting. You hop over the fence. You have transgressed. You have trespassed. You have done something you are not supposed to do. And so we are guilty of trespasses. We are guilty of transgressions. We are guilty of disobeying God. The Bible says it's, it's, a, it's a little even more involved than that. It's not just that we trespass God's law and we disobey him. The problem is far more fundamental and it uses the word sin to describe this problem. Meaning what? That we fall short of God's standard. That we can't even meet God's standard. God requires us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not merely that we disobey that command. It is that we fall short of it. It's like one of those youngsters has gone out to the extended session. You take a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and you put up a basketball net somewhere, full size, NBA size, and you stand that two-year-old there at the foul line, and you hand him a basketball and uh, let him ha at it. Sink a, sink a hoop, sink a shot. 
Hundred attempts, thousand attempts, a million attempts. Guess what? That two-year-old will never sink that basketball through the basketball net. It is a natural impossibility. And that word sin describes for us in the Bible not a natural impossibility, but a moral impossibility. That we fall short of pleasing God. We fall short of obeying God because it gets even more fundamental. It's not just that we disobey. It's not therefore that we fall short, but there is a basic inherent problem in us that causes us to rebel against God. There is something fundamental to our very wiring that puts us in opposition to God. And the Bible describes this as iniquity. We are governed and we have been as human beings ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. We have been governed by a basic operating system. And it is this. It is self-love. We are by nature selfaholics. That means what? That all that we do in life, even things which seem to be good, Even things which seem to be right before our fellow man and before our neighbor. Those things never flow from a principle of love for God. They arise from a principle of love of herself. And therefore they are but filthy rags in the sight of God. That is iniquity. I can't remember here in Texas. Lawn bowling. Have I lost you? You know what lawn bowling is? Very British. In Canada, even in Canada, we engaged in lawn bowling. I mean, you can imagine it. It's just a green, a little playing field. It's almost like a putting green on a golf course. The grass is that height. And on a warm summer evening, you'll get out there on the lawn bowling field. And you have these bowls, two teams, and a white ball, which is called the jack. And someone will throw the jack down to the other end of the green. And then the two teams have their bowls, which are colored. And it's whoever can get their bowl closest to the jack. Here's the problem. The bowls are weighted. They're biased. There is lead on one side of the bowl, which means what? No matter how many times you throw it, how soft you throw it, how hard you throw it, it's going to bend. It's going to curve. It's always going to move in the direction of its bias. It will always move in the direction of its weight. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Friend, that's you. And that is me. We are biased by nature. We are inclined a certain way by nature. And we are not inclined to God. We are inclined away from God to self-love. And because this principle of self-love reigns supreme in the heart, that's iniquity. We fall short of God's standard, that's sin. That manifests itself in trespasses and transgressions. That means what? We must obey God's law to be right with Him. What is the second point? We can't obey God's law. It is a moral impossibility because we are fallen creatures, fallen in the sight of God. It brings us, therefore, to the third truth that we must grasp. Here it is. We must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ steps in, justified in Christ. We have to obey God's law We can't obey God's law in ourselves 
Therefore, we must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. Someone who intervenes between God and us. Someone who takes our responsibility upon himself. Someone who assumes our debt. Someone who therefore acts as our surety. We turn over to chapter 4 in Galatians and we have one of the most glorious statements in all of Scripture. What is it? When the fullness of time had come, what did God do? He sent forth His Son, the eternal Son of God, born of a woman. That's the incarnation. What's the next statement, those of you who remember? Born under the law that He might redeem those who were under the law. The Lord Jesus Christ born into this world under the law. And the Lord Jesus Christ took the weight of the law in its entirety upon his shoulders. And friend, from the cradle to the cross, he obeyed the law. And he loved God perfectly with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And there upon Calvary's cross, he took the penalty for us having broken the law upon himself. And there he acted as our mediator, having fulfilled all righteousness, having paid that debt that was upon us. We must obey God's law. We can't obey God's law. Praise God. Our mediator has done what we could not do. And he has fulfilled all righteousness. And then he has paid the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross. And so therefore there is one God, one man, one mediator between God and men by whom all must be saved. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The fourth point, building on the third. You know where I'm going with this. We become one with the mediator. How? Through faith. So Paul tells us three times in our text. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first. Look at the second. Keep reading. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Third time in Christ. And what is faith? Well, faith is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the Lord Jesus prays to his Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So faith includes knowledge. We need to know who the Lord Jesus is. We need to know that he is God. We need to know that he became a man. We need to know that he died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. We know that he rose again. We know that he ascended on high. We know that salvation is found in him and him alone. Oh, but faith is not merely knowing Christ and his benefits. Faith is also applying Christ and his benefits. And that's why when you read John's gospel, we have those strange phrases, don't we? Where the Lord Jesus commands his disciples, you must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. What's he speaking of there? It's called appropriation. That just as you eat food, it becomes part of us. We assimilate it. We drink a liquid. It becomes part of us. So too, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't merely to cognitively know truth. It is to apply Christ. 
It is to take Christ as our Savior and as our only hope for salvation. Charles Spurgeon, he tried to get this across to his congregation. He used an illustration. Forgive me, forgive me if, if, it's, if it's a bit too much. It's a little frightening to think of. But he, he invites his congregation to think of a, of a young child on the second floor of a, of a building that's on fire. And the young child is standing at the window and the fire brigade arrives. I think this is Spurgeon's day, so we're back in the 1800s. And these burly firemen, they run to the base of the window and they have one of those, it almost looks like a trampoline, doesn't it? And they're all standing there around this thing and they call up to the little girl, jump, we'll catch you. The little girl believes. She knows she's in trouble. She knows the threat that is just behind her, lurking behind the door. She knows those firemen are there. She can hear them. She knows they're trained. She knows they're strong enough. She sees what they're holding and knows it can support her. Does that save her? No, what does the little girl have to do? She's got to jump. That's application. That's appropriation. That is taking the Lord Jesus Christ as our own. That is as, as Moses, you know, remember the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. So too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, those Israelites had been, who had been bitten by those snakes, what did they have to do? Yes, they had to believe, they had to understand that if they looked at that brazen serpent lifted up, they would be healed. It wasn't enough to know it. What did they have to do? They had to look. They had to apply it, appropriate it. Oh, this is what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To look to Christ alone. To look away from ourselves. Whereby through faith we therefore become one with Christ. One with our mediator. And because in God's estimation we are one with our mediator through faith. Then what Christ has done as far as God is concerned becomes Ours. That leads me to the fifth point. Here's the fifth truth. God accepts the mediator's obedience as if it is ours. So work through it from the beginning. We must obey God's law to be right with him. That was number one. Number two, we can't obey God's law. Number three, we must obey God's law in the person of a mediator. Number four, we become one with the mediator through faith. Number five, God accepts the mediator's obedience as if it were ours. Why? Because we are now one in an indissoluble union through faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God looks upon us, he looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God now looks upon me, he says what? Crucified, buried, resurrected. Because he is one with Jesus Christ. Not only that, when God looks upon me, that debt, perfect obedience, what does he say? Fulfilled. No problems there. Why? Because I am one with Jesus Christ who has obeyed the law perfectly. Oh, back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he was preaching on this one day to his church and, and, and trying to get it across, trying to convey the reality of this to his people. 
And they, they were a farming community. And he said, just imagine to yourselves. I mean, you're all farmers. And there you are out on your farm. And uh, we know how it is. Uh, that land needs fertilizer once in a while. And so all of you as good farmers, you collect the refuse, the manure from your animals. And you pile it together. And at certain times of the year, you spread that manure on your fields in order to add nutrients and, and everything else. Well, here we are. It's July. And you've been gathering that manure for a couple of months. And you've got these dung hills spotted the countryside. It's July. It's close to 100 degrees. And we all know it stinks. We can smell it from here. It's unsightly. It's unseemly. And it reeks to high heaven. But what's going to come in November? It's going to get really cold. And you're going to come out of your little hut, your little cottage one morning, and six inches of snow will have fallen during the night. And this pristine, white, perfect blanket of snow will be covering absolutely everything as far as the eye can see. The smell, gone. The sight of those dunghills, gone. See where we're going with this? But the Luther, the question he then asked his congregation was this. What still lies beneath the blanket of snow? The dunghills. They haven't gone away. Oh, friend, I hope you understand this. Sanctification, we're going to get there next week. We are talking about justification. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has all to do with Jesus Christ. I am one with Christ through faith. Therefore, God now sees me in Christ. Blanketed, if you like. That pure, pristine, white, perfect blanket of snow. And therefore he declares me to be what? Just in his sight. Righteous in his sight. Why? Because of a righteousness inherent in me? No. Because he now sees me in Christ Jesus. It brings us to the sixth point. It is as follows. God does all this. He justifies us as a free gift. It is all an expression of grace. It is all a manifestation of mercy. You imagine for a moment, and perhaps you've used this or you've considered, pondered this question in the past. You imagine for a moment, um, there you are. Lord has called you home. And you're standing before uh, his throne. And God, your creator, asks you, um, why should I allow you to enter heaven? Why should I permit you to enter glory? Take a moment, friend. Just answer the question. Don't belt it out. Don't say it out loud. Just whisper it there in the inner recesses of your mind. You're standing before your creator. And he asks you, why, why should I receive you? Why should I welcome you? Why should I permit you entrance into my glory? Four very common answers. Here is the first. I've done my best. That's justification by works. If that is how you answer the question, friend, that's not the gospel I'm preaching. And that is not the gospel, the good news the Bible preaches. It has nothing to do with your best because your best could not be good enough if given a million years. 
A very second common answer, a second common answer is this. I believe in Christ and I've tried to follow Him. That's justification by faith plus works. That too is a denial of God's grace. That too is an individual who is ultimately looking to what? What I've done, me, something in me. Yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus, but there is something in me, something I haven't done, something I do that differentiates me, distinguishes me from everyone else. That too is a false gospel. Here's a third common answer to that question. Why should God permit you to enter heaven? Are you ready for this one? Follow me through on this one. I believe in Christ with all my heart. That's justification by faith in your faith. I believe in the Lord Jesus with all my heart. I said a prayer when I was six. I walked the aisle when I was 17. I raised my hand at camp on a Saturday night when I was 22. Whatever the case may be. I made a decision. I did something. A choice of my will. That's why I'm saved. That's why God should let me into heaven, my friend. That is faith in your faith. And that too is not the gospel I'm preaching, nor the gospel of the word of God proclaims. The answer to the question is this. God says to us, why should I permit you to enter heaven? What's the answer? You shouldn't. But I'm with him. That's the answer right there, friends. That is it. You shouldn't. But I'm with him. And you see me as you see him. Death, burial, resurrection. They're mine. Because I'm one with him. The penalty of my sin has been paid in full. And your righteous demands. I could never do that. But I'm with him. Your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you welcome me because you welcome him. You receive me because you receive him. You are delighted, thrilled in me because you are delighted and thrilled in him. You love me because you love him. And you declare me to be just in your sight because I am one with the righteous one. Your son, Jesus Christ, my friend, that is grace from start to finish. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing you have ever done. Nothing you are currently doing. Nothing you could ever do if given an eternity to do it. It is all of Christ. And it is all of grace. Oh, to be justified in him and in him alone. And here is the seventh point with which we conclude. This truth, justification in Christ. It is the foundation of everything. Foundation of everything. It's the foundation of our hope. What did he declare from the cross? It is finished. What are you going to add, friend? What are you going to add? It is completed. It is done. Oh, there is our hope. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not only is it the foundation of our hope, it is the foundation of our comfort. John Bunyan, he was thinking on this years ago, and as he wrestled with assurance of salvation, he imagined God speaking to him. Bunyan, sinner, 
You think that I cannot save you because of your sins? My son is beside me. I am looking at him, not you. And I will deal with you as I am well pleased with him. Oh, there is our comfort. And there is our assurance. It is the foundation, too, of our happiness, is it not? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we now exult in God, our Savior. We exult in God, our Father. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could go on and on. One more. It is the foundation of our happiness. Do you remember our call to worship, the psalm with which we began? Psalm 32. Do you remember how it begins? Here it is. Blessed, happy, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count no iniquity. Our trespasses, our sin, our iniquity reckoned to the Lord Jesus in entirety. Oh, blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who knows this. The hymn writer put it as follows. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold of me. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in thee. Our Heavenly Father, may you impress it deep upon our hearts this day. May you cause us to look to Christ with renewed joy, renewed faith, renewed love. And to count ourselves a blessed people that we know forgiveness of sins in Him and the hope of eternal life. And for any in our midst, our Father, you know who they are, who as of yet have not put their trust solely in Jesus Christ. We do ask that this might be the day of salvation. We do pray that you might be merciful. And we pray that you might open their eyes to behold the beauty of your matchless grace in Christ. We ask this for the furtherance of your glory among us. And we seek it of you in your matchless name. We do pray. Amen.